You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. What a wonderful time of year. Let me say Merry Christmas. I forgot to tell the first service Merry Christmas, because unless you're going to be at our Christmas Eve services, one of three, by the way, really not much of an excuse to miss a Christmas Eve service, um, would be I won't see you until after to the, to the new year. And so um, Gene and I like to say that it is a, it's a joy, it's an honor um, to pastor this church, to, um, to get to know you, your families uh, are in process of doing that. Um, it's been, it's been the biggest pleasure of our lives um, being here and being with y'all. And I love, I love the, the Christmas season. Someone asked me if I was busy. And um, pastoring in Christmas, uh, I think, are busier than pastoring in Easter. Um, and I love, I love Christmas. Um, I love all the feels that Christmas brings. Um, I'm not sure about the candle stuff, though. See, worldwide... The candle market is supposed to reach $9.9 billion business by 2028, right? It is a legit, serious space on candles. I personally can't wrap my brain around how much candles cost. Um, That was the men that agree with me. Um, I can't, I don't understand how many candles can be purchased in a given year, and especially now that they come with instructions, right? Right? You said, trim this wig, do this particular thing. I I don't understand, um, especially because um, electricity has been common in American homes for about 100 years. And so why we need all of these candles? Why do we keep buying and burning candles? It's because that candles and the light from the candles uniquely brings about change, right? It can change a smell. It can change a mood. Um, while sometimes you're around people that will throw shade, candles will only throw light. Um, on Christmas Eve, Jean and I will light the center candle, the Christ candle. Um, we'll do that, and I'll traditionally on, well, I've been preaching through Advent on hope, love, joy, peace, light, as long as I can remember. Um, it is kind of the constant um, outline for me of Advent, but we're going to light that Center candle, you know, service ends with all the feels, right, with, with singing a song and, and Christ having lit your candle. But it's more than just the feels. Um, it's the experience of uh, the risen um, Christ that was born to us as a promise. We carry him in the middle as a promise, and we will see him again as a promise. Um, why do we light a hope candle Um, because darkness has a way of hiding from hope. Darkness hides hope. To quote Donald Sutherland as President Snow from The Hunger Games, like how I did that? It's Advent, and I'm quoting The Hunger Games. The only emotion greater than fear is hope. Fear and hope are powerful life drivers. Fear drives us to quit. Hope drives us to keep going. So when we embrace the light of hope, the light of Christ, 
uniquely has a way of changing the aroma of that stinky situation that you find yourself in. Uniquely has a way to bring light in it and change moods. I know it's a symbol, but it's a powerful symbol. And I've prayed that this simple act of faith this morning, the lighting of that candle and the embracing of a simple gospel message, that you will receive the hope of Christ that you need today. I have two complementary texts today, one out of Isaiah 9, one out of Luke 2. I'll begin in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah's prophetic years span the reign of four different kings and kingdoms. By the time we get to chapter 9, he's already on his third king. This is King Ahaz. On the setting of the words of Isaiah 9, they come out of a context in which Ahaz is, um, he is surveying how much water does he believe the city has left because they're under siege. Two particular kingdoms and kings came against, uh, joined forces to come against Israel and Jerusalem. And um, siege is an ancient kind of warfare tactic. They keep anything from going in the city and they keep any kind of messages kind of going out from the city as best they can. And they just, it's just a waiting game. They just kind of wait you out. And on this particular day, Ahaz is seeing how much water is left for them to hold out. And this is where Isaiah meets him. Isaiah meets him overlooking this water and he brings this particular word to him out of Isaiah chapter seven. He tells, he tells Ahaz to be careful, to keep calm, and do not be afraid. To do not lose heart because of these smoldering stubs of firewood. Very interesting use of language. He's telling them, in, in this context of where you find yourself, Isaiah, he's telling them, one, be careful. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid keep heart. You can lose heart, and you can keep heart. He's telling them to keep heart, and the reason he's telling, them, telling, telling him these things is that because what you're facing, what seems to be the darkest part here, aren't, this is not as dark as you think, and these forces aren't as strong as you think. And I really believe that's already a word for someone watching online or someone right here in the room that what appears to be against you isn't nearly as powerful as you believe it to be. And that's why he's coming with him into these words, telling them to be calm, be careful, don't lose heart here, keep your heart, because this, there's, there's something different going on. Do you remember a time when you acted on something out of fear or anxiousness and made a wrong decision? You operate out of fear or anxiousness, which comes when we find ourselves in circumstances that we don't have the answers for, right? We don't have the resources for, we don't have the answers for. And we do the math, and the math's not adding up, okay? And so then out of fear or anxiousness, we make a move, but how many times does that move end up putting us behind instead of ahead, Ahaz had acted, he had already made the decision, he had already made the commitment to the world superpower of the day, Assyria, that he would be in a pact with Assyria against, to, to help him against these two kings. But actually what he's done is he's asked the fox to guard the hen house. This is gonna be an unholy alliance 
that's going to be to Judah's detriment. But Ahaz did only what he knew that was in front of him to do. All right? And he made this wrong move. He acted independently. And so the last message from Isaiah in regard to the situation was, you know what? The end's coming. Jerusalem is going to be seized. Israel's going to be in exile. In no form can I say those words that are any, uh, that, that, that there could be any hope in those, right? It is, it's the ashes of knowing that we've made a decision that we're going to have to sit in. It's, it's not going to change here. We've got to sit in it. And yet, probably the most powerful, or at least one of the most powerful words we could ever hear is for someone to say, nevertheless. It's a unique word. It's three words written together. Even though this has happened, and in essence, Ahaz, even though this has happened and it was a decision that you made, you made it. Nevertheless, and he goes into this, um, uh, the back part of this passage. But let me tell you this, that your, your failures, my failures, my missteps, they will not void God's victory. It is possible to miss God in the moment. Anybody, anybody just would admit here in the room, I've missed God in the moment. All right, so we have experience with this. I have experience with this, okay? Missing God in the moment might put you in a holding pattern. It might put you in a more difficult position for the moment. But your moment doesn't stop God's movement. Your moment doesn't stop God's movement. The way our Christian life should play out is that we should move along with less missteps than we started out with. Because we start learning more the voice of the Lord, being understand his tone and how he speaks. And then we start gaining more trust in the Lord because he's proven himself. And we look back at the times he's proved himself and we don't hit a race and say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with this. That always has something to do with this. You understand me? That always has something to do with this. All right. And so Ahaz has made this misstep. It's going, to, it's going to cost Israel. And yet in that, here comes this powerful word, nevertheless. It doesn't hold any power unless you, unless you sit in the ashes of that missed moment. You have to bring yourself to reflect on, on, on the times in which you have known that you have acted independently or out of fear or anxiousness and what that has cost. That has to settle in for you to fully experience the hope of Christ, all right? But then his words are, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. What a, what a great word, just gloom. I mean, what, what describes darkness better than that word? What describes hopelessness better than that word as gloom, as a heavy cloud kind of resting over you? He said, even though you've made this decision, even though the city will be in siege, even though Israel will be in exile, even though those things are happening, ha going to happen, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Okay, what's, why the geography lesson? Because this is the area of the birth and the life of Christ, 
So where this is happening is actually gonna be ground zero for deliverance, okay? And so hope casts a further shadow, right? Hope looks out further and, and that further and what that promise is, is what gets us through the moments of those kind of missteps. Verse two, he says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This is what's gonna happen. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice with, when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. Now that's an odd, that's an odd statement. So here's what it means in more normal language. What has been used against you, God will use for you. Every warrior's boot, that's something that comes against us, will be turned into fuel for the fire that's used for us. See, these are, these are words that's delivered even before the whole brunt of these decisions are coming down, right? And they haven't even fully experienced all of the pain that they're going to experience. And God brings the promises and the hope. He brings it on the front end when we, when we, we need it then. We need it then. Um, the, uh, the promises of hope... Um, are significant. I've made these bullets. God's promises aren't platitudes. They're powerful. What's a platitude? It's a cliche. It's someone just kind of throwing something out out there in, in hopes that will make you feel better. God doesn't say things to try to make us feel better. That's a platitude, right? Platitudes are, are empty. So God's words aren't given to placate us. He's not just trying to placate us or, or make us stop crying, okay? His words uh, elevate us into hope. There aren't empty words. God doesn't just talk to talk. They're not empty words. They're pregnant words. They're words that birth life. God's words are anchor. They're anchors of hope stabilizing us when, when rising seas come and with, when winds stop being prevailing and start being in our face. It's important for us to get the promises and the word of God inside of us because it's more accessible. See, I can't turn to the third chapter of hope Right, I, 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 that my Bible doesn't have tabs that says when, when, when in danger, break glass here on page four thirty-five. Right, it's a story, and and it's a deep, in-depth, twine. I mean, it's a significant story, in which we read about the hope of Christ in significant moments and situations in real people's lives. And that's what carries it. That's what keeps it from being platitudes and empty words is because we see them unveil uh, on those pages. Isaiah's words are pregnant with hope. And it's fascinating that 700 years later, when Mary is told as a teenager that she's going to give birth to a child and she is not uh, married and she asked the very, probably very nervous, 
I, I, would, I would love to try to capture some of the mood of her question. How can this be? Because it, it, it had to become different than, than if you read chapter earlier, Zechariah is wondering how it's going to happen with him and his wife, and he gets silent for, for 40 weeks. She had to say it in a manner of trusting, expectant, but curious. One translation says that the angel says, well, nothing is impossible with God, or with all things God, with God are possible. But a better translation says, no word of God will fail. Man, that is rich. Mary, you are going to give birth to a son, and he will be the savior of the world. How can this be? Because nothing I say ever fails. It's a big deal. So when we have the promises of God as far back as 3,000 years ago out of Isaiah, these are words that won't fail. Who is this person being born? Isaiah gives us some of the most poetic and powerful um, handles to see Jesus. He says, for to us a child is born and a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, right? The old joke is when someone comes up and says, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help, you know, run, right? Um, we, even now in our political climate, the, the, how we see government gets all kind of discombobulated. We don't, we don't necessarily trust what goes on in government. Can I say this, that the government's responsibility is to protect us and to serve us. That, that's the government's responsibility. Now, there's no indication that Jesus was a giant, right? Jesus probably was a average build, average side Jewish man. When he says the government was on his shoulders, how big were their shoulders? They probably were 40 regular. And yet what, what Isaiah is laying the groundwork on is everything that we need for life for our care, for our protection, for our defense, rests on those shoulders. He can shoulder the load. When, when we have concerns and care, we're taught to roll those off onto his shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And another interesting phrase, and the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. That, that, can, that word can be interpreted as his jealous anger will accomplish this. Now, that is a unique way to phrase God's emotions. We don't like either of those two words, do we? Jealous or anger. They don't seem to bring up much hope in those words. And yet, watch, watch a mom or a dad protect their children. I mean, don't mess, don't mess with my don't mess with my kids. You and I are his kids. And regardless of where we step 
regardless of what we do, regardless of who is coming against us, we're his. And he wants us back. That's the zeal of the Lord. His, these emotions, if you will, that we would never think to ascribe to God is how he feels towards us. He wants us back. He wants us to be in relationship with him. So much so that he comes. When you look at, when you look at a Wonderful Counselor, you can read it in Job, you can read it several other places, you can read it in the Psalms, where, um, where, when God is doing his own rebuttal to people, and he'll say, where were you when I uh, set the foundation of the world in place? He does those things to say, who needs to advise me? If you need advice, I'm the counselor. Nobody gives me advice. I give advice. And the idea of wonderful, you know, I I use the word wow still. I don't know what's in vogue or not in vogue on words or emojis or or any of that kind of stuff. I'll still say, well, I don't say awesome a whole lot, but I'll say wow. I'll read something I haven't read before. I go, wow. You tell me something amazing I haven't experienced before. I go, wow. Right? Um, when I underline in books, I underline my wows. When I underline in scripture, I underline my wows. I go, wow. Either I didn't know that or I forgot about that. And so, so when God gives us counsel, when his words guide us in directions, I usually go, wow. Why? Because I didn't think of that. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have guessed that. I wouldn't have chosen that as an objective. And yet, God sees this big picture and he, he has the ability to, to help us navigate all that. He's a wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. The, the direct translation is he's God's strong hero. So when we were lost, what did God do? He sent his son. Go get him, son. Says he, God so loved the world that he gave and yet God said, go get him, son. He is, he is God's mighty hero. Everlasting Father. I know when we talk about fathers, it's always, um, I never know which ears that lands on, right? Because, because we see God through the image of our Father when you, uh, when you call him Father. So, so I understand it hits, the, the best advice I can give you is anything you ever wanted from a father, that's him. So, so one person might have the experience to say, I know a little what that's like, where the other person might have the experience of, I don't, have, I don't ha- know what that's like, but you both have the experience of, this is what I would want. And he, his, his fatherness to us is everlasting. There, there's never a cutoff date. There's never, okay, 18, you're on your own. That was the third strike, you're out. There, there, there is an everlasting, so everlasting, you could say, than a never-ending father connection of him with us. Prince of peace. He is the ruler of peace. Peace does what he says. You can read further in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 26 It reads, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Now, from 9 to 26, they're still in the middle of being exiled, okay? And so Isaiah circles back around with words of hope. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. 
We have a strong city. God speaks things into existence, okay? God speaks of things that are not as if they were. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself is rock eternal. Peace comes in trusting the prince of peace. And God makes Jesus our ramparts as it reads. So 700 years after Isaiah's promise of hope, Joseph gets startled by an angelic announcement that this hope will be birthed by his fiance. Now, even more specifically, Joseph is told that he is to name the child Jesus. Jesus means salvation. So think about that. Hey, let me introduce you to my son, salvation. Right, this is, this is not a small manner that he is instructed to not name the baby his name, not to name the baby a family name. He is to name the baby the name of that, that was his purpose, that his, his plan. And he names him Yeshua Salvation. Um, by the way, Isaiah, his name means Yahweh is salvation. So there's, there's, there's a, that makes sense that he would be the, uh, the prophetic, the most messianic prophet in the Old Testament. Um, there, there's nothing to indicate that Joseph was a particularly bold man. We don't, we don't have a lot of history about Joseph. But I would say that once once the Holy Spirit begins speaking to Joseph and giving him directions, he has to follow four different dreams over the early childhood of Jesus. And he follows them and he follows them when it's given and his boldness. And I thought through that. I wouldn't say that I'm a very bold person. I've taken bold steps before, but nothing what I would say that Charlie is bold. So how does Joseph turn into this bold father. And there's a, there's a, there's a football phrase um, that's been circulated much more in the last couple years called throwing a receiver open. And I know not everybody's sports fans. And I don't need you to be a fan. I want you to follow the concept. Concept is a receiver goes out for a pass and has a defensive back and safety. Other people trying to keep him from receiving that ball. Okay? The quarterback can see the whole field. The receiver can't. He can only see where he's going, and he's looking back to the quarterback. What a good quarterback will do is throw the ball where the defense isn't, where the receiver can get it. Does this make sense to you? It's called throwing a receiver open. The receiver might not run that route, but the quarterback's going to put the ball where it can be caught by the receiver. And I just want to tell you that I know boldness isn't, spiritual boldness isn't about a character trait. It's about trusting the Father to throw you open. That when he opens the door or makes a move or, or, or speaks a word, it is to get you into a place where you can receive that. And if we get stuck in our fear or we get stuck in our mess that we can't get, we don't think we can get out of, then we get stuck away from the hope that he's trying to bring us into. Um, God doesn't ask us to be bold or fearless in difficult times. He just asks us to be trustful and faithful. 
So shepherds show up a little bit after the birth of Jesus. I said this last week, you know, Mary and Joseph were the only people that knew what was going on and then shepherds show up. And I can imagine them looking at one another and said, who told them, right? But what does the event do? What the event does, in my opinion, is it reminds Mary and Joseph they're not alone in this. I mean, there, we have no indication of any other communication other than first the angelic announcement and then the birth. And so that middle piece is pretty significant. When you live in the middle of what you believe God's told you to do or the you from God and doing what, you know, it actually coming to be, that can be a significant gap of time sometimes. But my experience has been when you start taking steps of faith with God, he will circle back to show you that you're making the right choice and the right decisions. And then we come to the second passage in Luke 2. It's Jesus' eighth birthday. And on the eighth birthday, every male Jew was to be taken to the temple to be dedicated, uh, to receive a sacrifice on behalf of the dedication, and then to be circumcised. It was such a common occurrence, it was everybody's eighth day at the temple, right? Probably there's a sign hanging up above someplace saying, circumcisions and dedications, you know, form your line here, right? And then a rotation of priests ready to do what, what, what's called minor surgery, right? You know the definition of minor surgery. It's surgery someone else is having, right? It's the definition of minor surgery. So, so this is what's going on, and, and it's their eighth day, and Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus to the temple, everyday occurrence, plenty of crying babies all over the place, right? This is what's happening, and this is what we pick up in Luke 2, 22 through 27. Scripture says, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses... Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons, which was equated to their economic condition. Okay, They were poor. Now, verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. So what he's doing, he's waiting for the peace of Israel. He's waiting for the salvation of Israel. And it's interesting because the word waiting there isn't a toe tapping, is this ever going to happen? Waiting. It is, I know this is going to happen. I was told this is going to happen and I can't wait to see it happen. Okay, there's a big difference. All right, so he's waiting on the peace of Israel. It had been revealed to him, um, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Verse 27, moved by the Spirit. This is the New Testament version of nevertheless. Nevertheless was a transitional moment in what Isaiah was telling Israel. This move by the Spirit becomes our moment of transition. Okay? Follow, follow it out. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. By the way, Simeon's name means to hear. Moved by the Spirit. I just told you that every single day there would have been some boy being circumcised in the temple. Holy Spirit had told Simeon, you would see the consolation of Israel. And then on some random day, he feels moved by the Spirit. 
to go to temple? What are the odds? What are the odds it was going to be that day Jesus was entering the temple? I'll tell you, greater than any odds of the Powerball, that last billion dollar one or whatever went up. Okay? And yet because he was, I can't believe God's not doing this for me. I can't believe God told me this and nothing's happened yet. It was, boy, God's told me this is going to happen. No word of God will fail. Man, I can't wait for this to happen. Could this be the day? Could this be the day it happens? You see, it's a, it's a completely different posture, isn't it? This could be the day it happens. And so when you're ready, this could be the day it happens. I'm telling you, your ears are much more attentive to the Holy Spirit trying to throw you open. Now he gets into the temple and crying would have been a natural occurrence in the temple around this. Now, not, he's there on the day that Jesus is getting there, but he's now there when Jesus is in line. I probably believe, I, don't, I know this is not written out, but that my guess would be that the father presented Jesus to the priests. But after the circumcision and the baby's crying, the priest probably gives the baby back to the mom. Any other mothers agree with that? So now Mary's holding her crying baby, and this strange guy comes up. What makes Mary hand the baby to this strange guy that comes up? She knows the moment. She's in the moment too. And in this moment, moved by the Holy Spirit, Simeon reaches for the baby, and she, know, she don't fully know what's going on, but what she knows is something's going on. And so here's what happens. Come on up, team. Here's what happens. Mary and Joseph get another confirmation that this baby's special. This baby's the Messiah. And Simeon, Simeon's promise, did you catch his promise? The promise of Simeon is that he would see the consolation. But what does he get to do? He gets to hold. God has a way just exceeding his own promises on what we perceive them to be. We don't always get, like I don't always get all of the colors right on God's promises. I don't always get ahead of time that it's going to look this way. Plenty of times in my life I thought it's going to look this way. But then when I've received the promise of God and it looks completely different than what I had pictured it, there is something that connects and goes, oh, but that, that was what he was that's weird. And you know what? I have always underestimated God. Always. I remember I was sharing with a family off script um, that we'll be going into her. Um, I think, I think for, for Jean and I, the 17th or 18th January 21 day fast. And uh, we started it. Because when we, the, the January before we moved, our first visit to this area was December 22nd in Cool Springs. And I thought the entire county lived within that like eight block radius. And um, we got back and, um, and we said, well, if we're gonna do something we've never done before, we probably need to do something we've never done before. And so we, we did a 21 day fast. At the end of that 21 day fast, we had our first meeting with a couple 
that we were going to give our budget to and ask them to support what we were doing. And um, we were driving. I, I still remember it as clear as a bell. Gina says, um, what are you going to ask them for? And I said, I, I, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to ask them for anything. And she said, are you afraid that you're going to ask for too much? And I said, no, I'm afraid I'm going to ask for too little. And that family committed 50 grand to our launch that you'll never meet. You'll never meet them. And then 15 plus years later, we stand here. We knew the promise of God would be that there would be a viable church. But we didn't know what it was going to look like. We didn't know you for sure. And there was plenty of times along the way to doubt what would happen. And yet God always exceeds what we think his promises look like. If you will hold on to the hope, believing that he's a man of his word. He's a man of his word. They won't fall away. They don't always look like we think they're going to look. So what do we got to do to get there? Well, We've got to firmly believe in the nevertheless transition. The enemy wants to convince you that you have missed it, that you have disqualified yourself from it, that it can't happen now because of this or this or that, or boy, there's no way he can turn this. That's the tone. We should always recognize that as the tone of the enemy. Right? The tone of the voice we hear should be the clear indication of who that voice is coming from. The Father would not have sent His Son for a tone telling you that you can't make it. It might come out that you can't make it, but I can. A lot of times we have to be convinced first that we're the ones that can't make it. That's the nevertheless word. You know what the word is today though? It's moved by the Spirit. That, that today, uniquely, for whatever reason, you're in the room or you're watching online and you might find yourself in a hopeless place. Darkness has varying degrees. Hopelessness has varying degrees. And he was moved on and he moved as a result. So what do you have to do today to pick up the hope that's being offered to you in Christ? See, after the shepherds shared all the stuff about Jesus and to us stunned Mary and Joseph, it says that Mary treasured up those things in her heart and she pondered them. Uniquely, those phrases mean that she had gathered up all the bits and pieces that she had been told or heard, probably even bits and pieces of things she would have learned about the Messiah. And she was in the process, didn't know how to respond to this thing that her son's this, the Messiah yet. And she's gathering these pieces, pulls a piece from over here in her childhood, pulls a piece over here from this experience. And she keeps, and listen, hope sometimes is, it's always a promise of God, but many times hope has to be processed. And what Mary's doing is processing this hope. She's processing it. She's gathering all these different 
pieces of experiences of her life and things been told and she's just holding on. She doesn't even know what to do with them. She's a teenager. <laughs> and the Messiah is wrapped in cloths in her lap. Coming to Christ looks a lot like that that we get bits of truth maybe from over here or we had an experience in our life and someone was able to speak into that and we got a little of that over here. We don't fully understand all of who God is, but we got enough pieces together to maybe trust. And maybe you're in the room today and you've got enough pieces together today to trust. I don't know what this looks like. I don't know what it means to follow Christ. But what I know is I don't want to follow me anymore. And a lot of times, that's how this thing starts. I can't trust me anymore. I, I, I keep ending up in the same place. I'm ready to trust someone else. And uniquely today, if you're experiencing those emotions, that is the Holy Spirit moving in you to move you, try to throw you open to make a decision for Him. You may be a follower of Christ that doesn't exempt us from feeling like we can be in empty, hopeless times. And that's why I said at the very beginning that I hope that this simple act of faith and a simple gospel message will change how you're sitting in the middle. Love, joy, peace, love, joy, peace hope, these aren't moods. Um, Taylor told me to say vibes. For, for our younger. She also threw me out of the back. I was standing back there singing. She, she couldn't mix with me standing by her singing. I'm going to tell everything, Taylor. Get up here right now. I, I know that we most equate them with moods and vibes, and they can be, but they're not sourced. The, the mood source is Christ. So this is why you can hold on to love when you don't feel loved. You can hold on to joy when you don't feel joyful. You can hold on to peace when you're not peaceful. You can hold on to hope when you, when you don't have any hope. You can hold on to light when you feel like you're in a dark place because you're not trying to hold on to anything other than Christ who doesn't fail. What he says is true. And you can hold on to it. Who will you listen to and who will you follow? And that's what brings us to this moment now when we respond. When, um, you know, Simeon moved on by the Holy Spirit, moved. He, let me ask you this. You find yourself right now in a dark place. Raise your hand for me. You find yourself in a dark place, okay? There's, coming to an altar is movement. I invite you to altar all the time. Movement feels like exposure. Movement is an invitation. It's an invitation to let somebody else know that something's going on inside of me. Can I borrow somebody's faith? That's what it is. Can you only meet God in an altar? No. Can you only meet somebody else that will pray with you when you is when you let somebody know I need someone to pray with me? That's how that works. We always have communion available to our left and right. Communion is another one of those ancient symbols, not really a symbol. It's deeper than that. It's called a sacrament. Something unique happens when we receive and ingest Christ. It's always available to my right and my left. 
You can receive it back at your seat. You can receive it in the altar. But I encourage you to, to find some movement today towards hope. Stand with me. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing and worship again. And I invite you to do what you need to do with the Lord in this moment. Father, we're grateful to you that you've given us these words of, of nevertheless as a transition and move as a transition. Um, Lord, I believe that you've spoken to hearts today. Um, I, believe that, I believe that someone has heard you more clearly in the last few moments than they have heard you in a long time. And I pray that each of us would trust you and your word in whatever you are directing us to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.